0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Shiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Scott Smith joins the show for a conversation about the Chimera in Greek mythology. Dr. Smith is Professor of Classics in the Department of Classics, Humanities, and Italian Studies at the University of New Hampshire, based in the U.S., He is co-director of a digital mapping project on Greek myth called MANTO, and is also co-editor of the forthcoming book, Oxford Handbook of Greek and Roman Mythography, which will be published by Oxford University Press, and is expected to come out in early 2022. And Professor Smith joins the show today from the state of New Hampshire in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Scott.
1: Thanks,
2: Andrew. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: It's uh, great to connect with you, Scott, and I look forward to the chat that uh, we're having right now. So to create sufficient background and context, what is a Chimera in Greek mythology? Well, that's a a great question. I think that there are basically two answers to
2: that. There's first what I'm gonna call the canonical Chimera, which is the one that I think everyone uh, who knows about it remembers. Uh, most vividly illustrated in uh, a bronze statue called the Chimera of Arezzo, which everyone should take a look at online when they get a chance, which is basically a hybrid monster which has the front of a lion, the middle of a goat, and the back of a snake, tail of a snake. There's also other discussions in antiquity about the Chimera that uh, eliminates the goat part, There's some where uh, the fire comes from the mouth of the tiger, i sorry, the lion or the goat. So there's a lot of debate, even in antiquity, exactly what the chimera was. Uh, But the one that most people think of is the lion, goat, and snake.
0: I'm going to ask at some point, or it might come up naturally uh, soon in in, um, one of your further responses about the the canonical source, use the term canonical. Before we uh, get there, Um, what is the source of the word or the etymology of the word chimera?
2: Uh, That's a great question too. So, So chimera or chimera in Greek means something along the lines of a young sheep goat, maybe about one year old. Um, and this is the part of the monster that has caused uh, scholars uh, and people who think about monstrosity antiquity the most difficulty, right? Why is a goat part of a monster? Um, and so the chimera, which is the name given to it by Homer, which is the first um, source we have, and we'll come back to that, I'm sure, um, has basically fundamentally uh, fixed the name of this monster. Um,
0: and so the idea of a young she-goat uh, has caused great consternation, uh, but that's what the word means: is young she goat. Okay, young she goat. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So, let's uh, so let's let's go there to the canonical source, and I think that's that's natural at this point. Um, and you also mentioned Homer, I believe you mentioned that as a first attestation. So can you, and they might be the same or this might be separate things. So can you, can you speak about what the canonical source of the chimera is in Greek mythology that is known to modern day scholars?
2: Sure. Um, so to to begin with, to say that this a canonical source is actually problematic because we have two early sources that offer just a slightly different impression about what the Chimera is that creates a lot of controversy, even in ancient scholarship uh, itself. So Homer, uh, the author of the Iliad and Odyssey, um, recounts in book six of the Iliad uh, the tale of Glaucus, who is on, who's fighting for the Trojans, and he meets the Greek Diomedes on the battlefield, and in the strange mid-war, mid-battle speech, Glaucus takes us through his uh, family history, one of whom, great-grandfather, is Bellerophon, and Bellerophon is the one who fights the chimera.
1: And in Homer, uh, the way that the
2: chimera is described is simply front a lion, middle a goat, and back a snake. And that has basically formed the basis for the chimera for eternity. However... There's another source in Hesiod, in Hesiod's Theogony. Hesiod is contemporary of Homer, perhaps a little before Homer. We're not really sure about the chronology of these early epic poets. But in his Theogony, which describes kind of the creation of the universe, he spends a lot of time talking about monsters. And he has this whole genealogical chart of monsters. And in Hesiod, we have a very small change, which is that it is three-headed that there is the head of a lion, the head of a goat, and the head of a snake. And that
1: changes the basic construction from discipline being about parts to focusing on heads. And so the combination of Homer and Hesiod makes us think of this three-headed monster, which creates all kinds of problems. For example... You have a goat's head that comes out of the middle. It might
2: breathe fire. How does it do that without, say, harming the lion or the snake? It's all very complicated. And even in antiquity, they, they couldn't come up with the exact idea of how this all worked. But the basic canonical idea of a tripartite monster is found in
0: both Homer, Iliad six, and in Hesiod's Diogony. I want to ask... Certainly, in this this episode, the um, if there's two or three main traditions that pertain to uh, the chimera, and you've uh, it sounds like you've just shared two, and perhaps we'll, we'll, um, uh, one or both can be expanded on, and perhaps there's there's um, another one that you want to mention. Um, the how how come and this relates to this question. So how come in a cursory search online sometimes the chimera will be sighted with its back with its tail kind of the the back part of its body being a a dragon so so a dragon being specified not not a snake are you aware that where that might be coming from
2: well behind this question which is a great question um, there is the literary sources, and then there are the artistic sources, and we have a lot of artistic sources that kind of arise roughly the same time that the textual, the literary references are happening. So, we think eighth, sixth, seventh century BCE. We're thinking about these are arising, and I think, and, I'm not, I, and there's no way to prove this, but my own interpretation is that Homer's version allows for a different kind of artistic representation than the Hesiodic version. So if you take Homer's version, you have a front of a lion, middle of a goat, tail of a dragon or a dragon in the back. You don't necessarily have to have the head of a dragon um, and a full lion's body. You can have a lion in the front. You can have a goat head or goat body in the middle, and then you can have that in just curl off into a coiled snake. We have two examples of that on pretty early Greek art. I think that's trying to represent um, the Homeric version more specifically, whereas the canonical version, you see the three heads, the lion's head, the goat's head that kind of emerges out of the body of the lion in the middle, and then you have a snake as a tail, is basically taking the Hesiodic view, which is also uh, could be seen as following homers as well becomes the artistic norm right so most
0: of the vases you see the predominant number are going to be with a tail for a snake not the back of the animal kind of turning into a dragon or some kind of large serpent so in with with the uh, homeric tradition is there, is there more room for interpretation? Is that what you're saying, whether the tail was that of a dragon or a, or a snake? Am I understanding that correctly?
2: Yeah, I, I think the point is that Homer doesn't specify three heads. He simply specifies three types of body parts. And so that allows for all kinds of interpretations. Um, and in fact, if we look at um, scholarship on Homer, so in antiquity, Homer needs to be conceived of as the most important text for Greek culture
1: and when the educational practices became literary there were great there was a great amount of energy from scholars especially in Alexandria but
2: elsewhere trying to figure out what Homer meant without taking into consideration anything else so interpreting Homer based on Homer and they go to large like great lengths to talk about exactly what the chimera
1: is Why is it called a chimera, a goat?
2: Why is it not called a lion if the lion is the most part of it? Um, And so these scholars, right, try and figure out exactly what it means. And in some of these interpretations, and we have some some writings from antiquity on Homer, um, some of these scholars say the middle part is not a head, but it's simply a goat body. So a lion's head, goat body, why that's terrifying I don't know, and then the head of a snake. So Homer um, is open to different kinds of interpretation um, based on its very ambiguous idea of hybridity, lion, goat, snake, not heads. I think that allows for greater flexibility in figuring out exactly what this monster looks like. I think it's also important to realize that mythical creatures and myth in general are very frequently open. Development, elaboration, and
0: changes based on in, any individual's telling or any individual's interpretation. So, under Homeric convention, the the rear the rear side, the, the 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 back of the the body is a is the tail of a snake. That's correct. Or or just a snake. It's actually just drakon opista, which means a dragon in the back,
2: or drakon, which means kind of large serpent. And it's not clear if it's a head or if it just turns into the tail of the snake. And so it kind of moves with, you know, the forefront of a lion's paws and the back. The snake will kind of like slither on behind it. It's never really, you know, figured out. But there are a couple of, of artistic examples, that, uh, as you point out, where the back is not the head of a
1: snake, but it's simply the coiled end of a serpent, a large serpent.
0: Okay. Do you want to share a couple... Popular, or what you feel are relevant traditions, as it pertains to the chimera in 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 action. Sure, um, this is uh, one of the great
2: questions I always think about when I'm dealing with uh, mythical monsters. Is what is the what's the role of the monster? Right? Is it meant to elicit fear in the hearers? Um, is it meant to you know somehow maybe represent human fears in their minds by having these kind of extra creatures or is it and i think this is true of the chimeras case primarily it's meant to be a foil for a great hero to overcome and if you look at monsters even in the near east right the ones that actually you know arise are usually overcome by um, the cultural heroes or gods of that culture and so in this case the chimera is the foil for a hero by the name of Bellerophon. A Bellerophon is a Greek who then gets transplanted over into the east, so modern-day Turkey and the, su- the the southwestern part of it. Um, and Bellerophon is the one who takes on the Chimera. So we really don't have any dramatic battle scenes where the you know Bellerophon gets on Pegasus and there's a 50-line you know epic battle. It's really about him overcoming the Chimera, and it usually takes about two lines for it to happen. Basically, they describe the Chimera as this horrible monster, lion, goat, snake, Bellerophon, who tames Pegasus, which we should probably talk about a little bit at some point, um, and gets on the back of the flying horse and kills the Chimera. That's it. No epic battle, no description, no battle scene. It's just that. And we aren't sure exactly if there was an epic Um, in antiquity, that talked about this. There probably was. If Homer's going to refer to it so offhandedly, his listeners probably know a little bit more. It's probably a more elaborate thing. We just don't have it. Um, We do have a couple of um, places in which we can see how the ancients probably conceived of it with Bellerophon, Poison, and Pegasus with a spear getting the advantage of height in battle and using
1: that spear to kill... Uh, the Chimera. We have lots of uh, bases that have
2: those two on there. They tend to be Athenian base, uh, bases, rather than Corinthian bases, which we'll get back to. Um, but the Chimera Arezzo that I mentioned earlier, which is a beautiful bronze statue um, of immaculate uh, production, uh, has wounds all over the body, including the, the goat neck. And we think that The original composition was not just a chimera, which is impressive enough. It would have had a bronze Bellerophon on Pegasus and would have been stationed above it to give that kind of action sequence going on. But beyond that, we don't have any real, like
0: long uh, epic battles between the monsters. The chimera is simply a monster for Bellerophon to conquer. I'm gonna ask uh, if there's any other uh, traditions that you wanna share in, in more of the classical period that uh, shows up in the, the records. You mentioned Hesiod uh, earlier as well, r- wrote about the Chimera. Um, can, do you want to, but before we go there uh, so that we don't um, miss this point, do you want to take a moment and treat the Pegasus that you had brought up in your last response?
2: Sure. Um, the, the third main early text we have that talks about um, the Chimera in general um, is uh, Pindar's Olympian 13, the, the 13th poem in his Olympians. Uh, Pindar was a was a rock star poet that composed victory odes and songs for um, people who won in the Olympic Games or another uh, festival like the Pythian or Isthmian Games. And in the 13th ode, he talks about uh, a guy from Corinth, and so that that brings him to uh the kind of mythical history of of Corinth and Pindar was famous for bringing mythical figures in as representations of goodness of the city or kind of the mythical founders of the city and in it he talks about how Bellerophon had to tame Pegasus um and it was um not easy. So Pegasus was kind of hanging around Corinth, apparently, um, and it took the uh, help of the goddess Athena to help him uh, charm and tame uh, the Pegasus. And Pindar describes this um, uh, this help with Athena giving him a golden bridle that served, that served as a filtron or a charm to bring the horse under control. Otherwise, a mortal would have no chance. of of controlling it. And of course, Pegasus is uh, uh, a hybrid creature of its own. It is a flying horse with wings. Um, And one of the the really interesting things about this is we have two hybrid creatures. We have a winged horse on the one hand, and we have the chimera, uh, the hybrid monster we've been talking about for the whole podcast. And the Pegasus has a very different rep, so to speak. It is a good monster, right? It's still as freakish as anything else, but it helps Bellerophon defeat um, the Chimera, among other uh, things that Bellerophon has to do in the far um, east. So Pegasus is really an interesting figure of its own. And um, we can go into this more if you would like, but there there is an etymological association of Pegasus um, with uh, an epithet of a storm god from the east and so some scholars have posited that Pegasus
0: was originally kind of an Eastern conception that got brought into the myth, um, into the West, and uh, that is, into the Greek mythological system. You mentioned two responses ago. I think it was two responses ago. Uh, and I believe you said Corinthian uh, vase. Um, did you, did you uh, uh, go back to that, that point? I think you wanted to make sure that that's covered as well in our, our chat today. Did you want to expand on that comment?
2: um certainly um so the um when we
1: think of about how myth um forms identity so for
2: historical greeks greeks who lived and worshiped the gods zeus and hera and athena um they they have a a kind of a sense of the past that is not historical like we think of it and myth kind of takes the place of what we think of as history so so for the Corinthians, right? And Corinth is a, is a city on the on the isthmus, um, on the southern part of the isthmus that connects the Peloponnesus, which is the near island um, at the bottom of what we think of as Greece, and the mainland of Greece. And Corinth was a relatively important figure in, um, in Greek history. Uh, it has incredibly beautiful base paintings. And Bellerophon, Pegasus, and even the Chimera became kind of Uh, a source of identity, of prestige uh, for the city. Um, And uh, we we don't really have time to go into this. I'm also not an art historian. Uh, But when you compare the differences in composition between the Corinthian bases, um, which are beautiful and are worth looking at, um, and the Athenian bases, you will see that in many ways, the Athenian bases are looking more
1: toward the narrative side of things. So representing the battle between the
2: Chimera uh, and Bellerophon, whereas they're more static in in Corinth, Um, but what to take away from this is that the earliest bases we have are really Proto-Corinthian, which means early Corinth,
1: and that really probably represents the Corinthians embracing the myth as it's told
2: in Homer and using it for, I won't call it propagandistic reasons, but ideological reasons, that Bellerophon is our hero. He killed the Chimera and he is ours.
0: Is the Chimera, is it always associated in known tradition to be um, linked to the Bellerophon myth that you've been going over, or does the Chimera show up in any other stories?
2: That's a great question. Um, So the Chimera is really completely 100% connected to Bellerophon in their earliest sources. Um, The Chimera doesn't come up in any other story. he doesn't pop up against Heracles, for example, or Perseus, he is simply the uh, monster that Bellerophon Um, kills. Um, And it's probably because of those earliest sources establish it um, that way. So in in Homer, for example, and
1: in in Pindar for that matter, um, Bellerophon is sent from Greece to go kill the Chimera in the east, but he's
2: also um, sent off to kill uh, other um, peoples of the East, the Solomoi, which are this kind of like really important people, uh, but we don't know much about them, um, as well as the Amazons, and the Amazons are located also to the far east. So the Chimera is placed in the east. Bellerophon is specifically sent, for reasons reason that we can get into if you'd like to, to kill the Chimera. He also then kills some others, and then Bellerophon basically establishes his, the rest of his career um, in uh, what is modern-day Turkey in uh, ancient Anatolia. So the chimera really only um, is, uh, is involved in the plairiform myth. Now, now, we have one example, late example, um, in, in Etruscan art, which is basically the area north of Rome. Uh, they were powerful people uh, before the Romans sort of was, uh, exerted control over the Italian peninsula, And there is an example where Heracles is the one who kills uh, the chimera. Um, But this is actually somewhat controversial, um, and even if it is uh, interpreted correctly, um, it's a one-off that is probably not meant to reflect another vibrant version. Bellerophon is the one who does this. And by the way, I just want to point out for all all of your listeners, if you've seen the original uh, Clash of the Titans, Perseus is there the one who tames Pegasus. That version is not an ancient version. Uh, it makes sense in the context of the movie, uh, but Bellerophon is the one who who tames Pegasus in the ancient mythical tradition.
0: Okay, how do you have any sense of in tradition how large the Chimera is? Um,
2: there's no um, exact um, dimensions that we can talk about. Um, but Homer does talk about it um, in a very specific way. So the chimera in Homer is referred to as Amayma maketane," which is a word that I don't think anyone actually understands 100%, but it probably means irresistible. But some people equate it with length or size. Uh, the etymology is uncertain. Uh, Homer also calls it of divine stock and not of mortals. And it dreadfully breathes out fire um, from one of its mouths. We're not really sure. Um,
1: the, the sense
2: is, is that the chimera is a largish creature, mainly because monsters tend to be represented as larger. Now, when you see the, the, the images on vases, you will see, for example, an Athenian vase. Um, you'll see Bellerophon on one side on Pegasus, or actually Pegasus with Bellerophon off dismounted, and the Chimera on the other side, and, the, and Pegasus and the Chimera are relatively equal. Bellerophon is somewhat dwarfed by it. Now, one could say that that means that the Chimera is larger than life, which it probably was conceptually in the minds of the Greeks, but we also have to remember that the needs of artists and composition also will...
1: Um, force different representation, so it's not exactly clear. But I think that just being a monster uh, in and
2: of itself meant to be fought uh, by uh, a great hero means that it is meant to be seen as bigger.
0: I want to go back to the etymology uh, for a moment that we covered a bit at the start. So you had mentioned that uh, a way of translating the the term, I think you had mentioned young she-goat, where does the uh, young come from um, in the etymology? Where does the pronoun she come from? And and there's three parts. It sounds like um, a lion, a goat, and in tradition, a snake. Um, is there any sense of why the the, the goat was used to describe this um, this this uh, op- this object, this figure in Greek mythology?
2: So chimera um, may may be related to the word for like season, and so it would be a seasoned um, uh, she-goat. So that's the idea. And and even if it's not a one-year she-goat, it is definitely the word for a a female goat. Um, Greek nouns are
1: gendered by their endings um, and also by their very nature. So a combination
2: of nature and endings often tell us what what gender it is. And whenever you see um, an A on the end of a word likely, not, not always, but it's likely that it's going to be feminine, and Chimaira is simply a feminine word. There is a male form of this, chimairos, which is a male goat. Um, and so, so we know that it's feminine grammatically, right, so that the word Chimaira is, is feminine. The irony of this is that the majority of the depictions of the Chimaira, this female goat, is a male lion's body, out of which a goat's head or goat forefront emerges and a tail of a snake. It is usually a lion, but sometimes it's a lioness. And my favorite, my very favorite ancient face um, is this this two-sided face. On one side, there is a very masculine lion chimera. um, And on the other side is a very feminine chimera. Uh, With a lioness's body, with uh, teats, she has just given birth, and there's a little baby caimera without the goat head, uh, suckling at her teat. And so, this is a remarkable question about why is it feminine? Why is it called a goat? And how do we kind of you know uh, associate that with what we might think of as kind of masculine aggressiveness? and in fact if you look at monsters and monstrosity you'll see that there are a lot of feminine um monsters Scylla, for example uh the female who has dogs growing out of her midsection that destroys odysseus's ships uh you have the Sphinx, which is definitely feminine right so, so there are lots of feminine monstrosity um uh, uh items out there um and the chimera the that, that feminine aspect of it is not absolutely clear. and oftentimes gets obscured in the artistic tradition.
0: Okay, you mentioned Hesiod Hesiod wrote about the Chimera and deviated a bit from the Homeric description of the Chimera. Does Hesiod expand on the Chimera at all in terms of any narrative? Do any myths come from Hesiod's writing?
2: Uh, No, and that's one of the problems. Um, The chimera is uh, simply part of a catalog of monsters that are given uh, some kind of genealogy. Um, So there's this, I mean, it's a very lengthy catalog. The genealogy of that catalog is very complicated, specifically because of uncertain relative pronouns, like, and this person who did this, um, the who, we're not sure who it's referring to. So it's kind of this mishmash of, of genealogies that is probably meant to give a general sense of um, of connections between monsters, but without any real specifics. But there's really no uh, narrative um, about this, in Hesiod in, in particular. We do get a little bit more about Pegasus, who is said to carry Zeus's thunder and lightning, um, but, but there's not not much more than a passing mention. And partly that's because um, Hesiod's Theogony is not very interested in narrative. It's more interested in creating the connections that explain where everything in the world comes from. So you'll have a list of 50 daughters um, of uh, the the Nereids, the 50 daughters of Nereus, sorry. and uh, you won't get any narrative about that. There are occasions when narrative pops in, but it's very, very infrequent, um, and certainly nothing in the uh, monster category is given any kind of elaboration in terms of its
0: its mythical narrative content. And I want to clarify your comments about Pindar. So when Pindar was writing about this topic, was he expanding then on the... Bellerophon myth.
2: He uh, he was, um, and uh, the the chimera plays. Sorry, the the chimera plays a very limited role. It is much more about Bellerophon in Corinth um, taming Pegasus, and in fact, Pindar has um, a a penchant for. heroes uh, and especially, uh, especially about god so at the very end of uh pindar's olympian ode he basically says um something bad happens to bellerophon but i won't dwell on that um because bellerophon's um end is is, is not great um it uh, is very typical for a greek hero whose end ends very very uh, poorly um But Pindar doesn't really elaborate on the Chimera either. It's focused on the Greek hero. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is that um, these these monsters don't tend to have lives of their own. Um, If somebody wants to explore the backdrop of of the Chimera, they're going to have to write their own fan fiction in many ways to get there.
0: In classical... So when looking at the classical Greek period and, and roughly around that period... With, with writings that have survived. So in tradition, is there only one chimera? There's not more than one chimera that shows up in tradition?
2: Uh, typically, there is a single chimera. i mentioned that vase with a little baby chimera. Um, any, any Greek monster can be proliferated in various places. Um, so you'll see um, some monsters that are duplicated, say, for example, in the underworld uh, or elsewhere. But that's more of a, of, of a practice of, of proliferation than there actually being more than one chimera. There's only one chimera. It's defeated by Bellerophon. Um, of course, all myth is subject to interpretation in various ways, and there's a lot of remarkable um, uh, ways that the myth gets brought into the realm of real possibility, uh, which we can get into. Um, but there's only one chimera that really um, exists in the Greek mythological
1: tradition
0: you made a reference to it being and you didn't you didn't say the the, the word um, directly immortal but based on what you had said in tradition, that's how I interpreted it and please clarify in your in your response so is it is it believed in tradition that the chimera is mortal or immortal and if it is Immortal? Is it known what happened to it after it was defeated by Bellerophon in tradition?
2: Uh, so that that mention of divine stock um, is an interesting thing. Now that can mean, of course, it has you know it it it, it descends from divinity. Um, divinities in Greek uh, myth are almost always immortal. Uh, but being a divine stock does not necessarily mean that it cannot be killed, and and our our versions say that the chimera was killed, was defeated and killed. Um, most of the time, as I mentioned, it's Bellerophon and Pegasus basically stabbing it. Um, but we have one late version, um, which we're not sure exactly where it comes from, but uh, it probably plays on the idea that the chimera is a fire-breathing monster and. Uh, and Bellerophon gets on Pegasus, but puts basically um, a ball of lead on his spear. And when the, the chimera opens its mouth to breathe fire, he sticks it in there, the, the, the lead melts and basically offs uh, the chimera that way. Um, but, but I think the, the main point is, is that monsters are meant to be destroyed by Greek heroes specifically to create peaceful, normal conditions for humans to thrive. Whether or not they thrive is a different story, but um, the chimera needs to be offed. And in this case, um, all of our uh, evidence is that the chimera is killed.
0: Is there anything else about the chimera that you want to cover today? We covered a lot of, lot of things in, inside of the conversation so far, Scott. Is there anything else that you feel that we haven't touched on that's really important that we touch on? Or is there any point that you want to emphasize before we wrap up the conversation today?
2: Sure. Um, so one of the things that I'm, I'm most interested in, and, and, and you mentioned the Oxford Handbook of and Roman Mythography. Um, I should probably define mythography briefly. Mythography is basically a study of the way that the ancient Greeks and Romans interpreted, organized, and analyzed their own myths. So mythology is modern study of the myths. Mythography is the way that we look at how myth was organized and interpreted. And uh, one of the things that myth does is it, it, it transforms a great deal. And one of the things that the Greeks did was um, realize that ancient myths were fantastic. They uh, disobeyed biological norms. Uh, they had supernatural aspects to it. And so they tried really to figure out where did these crazy stories come from? Obviously, to the intellectual Greek, the chimera could not have existed because there are no chimeras that exist today. So they put on a lot of different interpretations. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll give you one just because it's it's one of my favorites. So there's this guy in antiquity by the name of Polyphetus. He wrote a work called One Unbelievable Tales, in which he systematically dismantles the Greek myth And he replaces it with a normal occurrence that somehow got mythologized. Um, And basically, he says, how can you have a flying horse? It's too heavy and it doesn't exist now. You can't have a hybrid creature like the chimera because how does it digest the same food? And fire-breathing animals just don't exist. And finally, Polithidis says, which head would the chimera obey?
1: All of these are objections to the fact uh, that the chimera exists, it doesn't. So we have to explain where the real story
2: comes from and how it became mythologized. So Polifida says the Chimera was no monster, but it was simply a mountain called Chimaira, and it was located in the area that the myth takes place. The mountain itself had a chasm that vomited fire, and on the approaches on either side of the mountain, it was infested by lions and serpents that terrorized the woodsmen. Bellerophon, who was a Corinthian exile in this uh, account, arrived on his ship, which he named the Pegasus, that is the flying Pegasus, which sailed quickly through the sea. And he set fire to the forests, killing the beasts, the lions and the snakes. And through a misunderstanding of language, typical of rationalized interpretation, the locals said Bellerophon came with the Pegasus and destroyed the Chimera. And that gave rise to the impossible myth. And this is one of many different explanations how the Greeks came up with this implausible story about a monster that could not possibly have existed. And so for those of you out there who have extra time
1: on your hands, I really recommend reading Polithonus. It is remarkable and
2: super fun.
0: What um, century is it believed that he wrote that additional tradition, Scott?
2: Polyphonus is uh, an author about whom we know not a lot. He's associated with um, the Aristotelian school. Traditionally, and this is traditional, it's not provable, uh, traditionally he's given the 4th century BCE, so when when these sorts of rationalizing accounts start to rise, but it could be later. If it is later, though, it's, it's representing um, a... a interpretive strategy, we might call it, that goes all the way back to the time of Socrates, who famously in uh, Plato's Phaedrus, criticizes all of these intellectuals trying to come up with outrageous explanations for how myths came to be. Um, So so I would say that um, Polyphonus represents a strategy that a lot of intellectuals uh,
0: used as early as the late 5th, early 4th century BCE that additional tradition is thought provoking, thinking thinking about how what it sounds like he's he's doing is he's trying to, to trying to make the 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 tale more more pragmatic. Um is that and, and we're working a way to, to to wrapping up the conversation today and this this conversation is about the, the Chimeran Greek mythology but um, but on on that on that point though um, does that is there other is there other writers is that a is that a common element that you found in the study of greek myth where you've been able to find other sources of tradition that you can tell the writer was trying to rationalize what actually occurred
2: yeah, there are lots and lots of rationalizations of greek myth um, and the chimera and bellerophon and pegasus are are very frequently rationalized um rationalization just simply means finding a normal occurrence in real life that could be plausibly happening, and that would lead to a, a crazy myth coming out of it. There's a second kind of interpretation, as I mentioned briefly, called um, allegorical uh, uh, reading, which is basically uh, finding symbolism. And one of the most important ones of these is uh, by a writer by the name of Fulgentius, probably 4th or 5th century CE, so we're, we're 9 centuries after Polyphonus and Aristotle, um, who gave uh, basically an, an allegorical interpretation that uh, the chimera um, really means a uh, wave of desire and is a symbolic defeating of lust. So the lion is the consummation, I'm uh, sorry, is the onrush of desire. The goat is the consummation of love because goats tend to be very sexual creatures. Um, and then the serpent is the poison pill of remorse after the fact and this interpretation of the chimera not being a real monster but representative of awful things that could happen to human beings got taken up by the christians quite quite um quite vividly Uh, and bellerophon's defeat of the chimera becomes a symbol for um, christian um, uh, defeating of lust and one thing uh, readers might want to look into if they have their time is the way in which uh, bellerophon defeating the chimera became represented as St. George defeating the dragon. And we don't have time to get into that, but it's something that um, uh, your your listeners can go and pursue on their own. But the Chimera has a long life, in other words.
0: It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Scott. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge on this topic.
2: It's my pleasure. I, I love talking about Greek myth and especially the Chimera. Thanks.
0: You're welcome, Scott. So again, everybody, the couple mentions that I made at the start of the episode... Professor Scott is co-director of a digital mapping project on Greek myth called MANTO, and he's co-editor of the forthcoming book, Oxford Handbook of Greek and Roman Mythography. I'll drop links to both these references in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Scott and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now.